Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Good evening, everyone. I'm Abby Phillip, and this is a special edition of CNN Tonight. No need to worry. The bathroom door is locked. That is actually one of the defenses Donald Trump's allies are using to assure all of us that national security was not at risk at his resort home. But tonight, we are going to show you why the indictment of the former president may be more of a national security case than a documents or even an obstruction one. Trump's lawyers asking the Department of Justice for security clearances as the judge sets a new deadline for them to do so. And why is that? Because the material that led to the very first federal indictment of a former president is about as sensitive as it gets. Was that a good look for the former president to have boxes in a bathroom? I don't know. Is it a good picture to have boxes in a garage that opens up all the time? A bathroom door locks. There are 33 bathrooms at at Mar-a-Lago. So don't act like it's just in some random bathroom that the guests can go into. That's not true. Well, to be fair, it's unclear how easy it is to breach the bathrooms at Mar-a-Lago. But what is true and proven is how vulnerable that resort really is. Back in February of 2017, Trump openly discussed a North Korean missile launch with the Japanese prime minister in the dining room, looking at a laptop that could be seen by diners and waitstaff. And later that year, in April, Trump hosted the Chinese president in a living area of the Great Hall near resort members and guests. And in that same month, Trump launched an impromptu situation room to watch a U.S. missile strikes on Syria. And experts at the time questioned the setup and those who surrounded him. And in 2018, a college student, screened by Secret Service, entered the resort through a tunnel connected to the beach after being arrested. He'd later tell a judge, quote, I just wanted to see how far I could get. And in 2019, a Chinese national was detained in the lobby after being cleared by Secret Service. She had four cell phones and a thumb drive with malware on it. In 2011, in 2021, a fake heiress from Ukraine somehow got access to the resort, posing for pictures by the pool. The alleged scammer also took pictures with Trump and Senator Lindsey Graham at the golf club. So keep in mind that all of these incidents happened at the very place where the federal government found dozens of classified and top-secret folders inside a bridal suite above the Grand Ballroom and below the public center of the resort. 
Prosecutors say that the rooms could be accessed from multiple outside entrances, including the pool patio. And they also say that between January of 2021 and August of last year, the resort hosted more than 150 social events, weddings, movie premieres, fundraisers that, quote, drew tens of thousands of guests. One Mar-a-Lago member telling CNN, once you're on the property, you can really go anywhere. I do. I want to begin tonight with a unique perspective. Joining me is f- former federal prosecutor and Florida-based attorney defense, defense attorney Tim Jansen. He's represented Matt Gates's ex-girlfriend and defended corruption cases in the past. Tim, great to have you here tonight. I, I wonder what you think. Uh, do you think that reading this indictment that DOJ prosecutors focused on the national security elements, uh, perhaps because some of the arguments that we're already hearing from the Trump camp are around the process, are around who owns the documents. Is that stronger ground for them to be on? Well, they had to do that because the Presidential Records Act doesn't have a criminal component to it. So they focused those records onto an espionage. Uh, it does still require a willful intent. Uh, if you look at that statute, I see how the government coordinated it and charged it very detailed. Uh, the defense is obviously going to claim that he has a right to the records. I don't think we've had a criminal case in the history of this country under the Presidential Records Act. Um, so the government detailed, and I believe they did that, trying to get it away from the presidential records and trying to build up support with the public in the public opinion and showing the recklessness of the president by how the records are being kept. And do you think, I mean, given that they have now also moved the venue down to southern Florida, will it be a challenge for the government to get any 12-person jury unanimously offering a guilty verdict against Trump in a case like this? Well, I think you're correct. Uh, The venue had a problem because many of the charges were that he failed to return the documents. So failing to return them means the crime was occurred when he failed to return them, which the venue would have been Florida. Uh, the jury is going to be very difficult for the government. Uh, it's going to be similar to what happened in O.J. Simpson case. They moved it to L.A., a more favorable venue for, the, for O.J. This is certainly a more favorable venue for the President Trump. Uh, the country is so polarized. If you look at the polls today, half the people think he should be long in prison. The other half think this is all politicized. He should have never been charged. So the jury selection is going to be so important. The judge in this case will control a lot of the jury selection, especially in federal courts. Um, you get 10 peremptory challenges, but the yeah. key is going to be getting the challenges for cause. And that's showing the person is biased because you only get 10 peremptories. And in my practice, this is so different than any other trial you're going to see. Because in most cases, people don't want to sit on a jury. So I always try to pick people who don't want to be on it because they don't have an agenda. Yeah, in this case, everyone wants to be on this jury. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, this will be the case of a lifetime for a lot of people, and it'll be hard to find people who don't have an opinion. But, Tim, uh, last night the Washington Post reported that Trump's attorney, Chris Kyes, who's a very well-known figure in the state of Florida, was trying to get Trump to make a deal with the DOJ to avoid all of this. And you know him personally. You know Chris Kyes personally. Uh, uh, Do you think that he really had a chance to get Trump to take a deal if he had listened? And at at that point, in the investigation, was it even a realistic option that he could have forestalled 
a criminal charge here. Well, uh, sometimes the boat gets away from the dock and there's no going back. Um, I think that Jack Smith was given a duty and a job, and you look at this indictment, it was very detailed. Uh, I do know Chris, I know Chris very well. I've worked cases with him. Um, I don't think there's gonna be a deal. Um, your client is the ultimate person. President Trump is, uh, uh, for all his goods and bads, he's a fighter. He's gonna fight this. And I think the odds of him getting convicted are very slim with the way the country is and the jury panel. I don't think President Trump would have ever taken a deal. Yeah, I mean, I, and we spoke to, I mean, uh, someone who knows President Trump very well, who said basically the same thing, that he likes to see a fight. Uh, look, uh, one of the factors in all of this is when is this trial even going to happen? And right. it's not also the only trial that former President Trump is facing. The dates are now set in the heart of the primary season next January and in March uh, for the E. Jean Carroll defamation case and the hush money charges. So in addition to this case, uh, how long do you think all of this is going to play out for? Well, I can tell you, uh, when you have a classified case, it's hard to get an attorney who can pass and get classified records. Um, and then you have a co-defendant that needs to get an attorney that can get past a classified records challenge. You have many pretrial motions. Um, you have a lot of pretrial motions on the attorney-client, the crime exception. So I doubt this case would even be ready for trial in a year. Uh, I doubt it would be tried before the November election of, 19, of 2024. Do you think that the, the judge would decide if it got too close to just simply push it past the election? Well, well the Department of Justice has a policy that yeah. they don't like to interfere with elections. And they usually go back like 90 days before an election that they don't want to bring charges or indict someone or certainly not try a case. Uh, this is completely different uh, in so many ways, Abby. Uh, and one, another example I want to tell you. Normally when you go into trial, the, the government is seeking conservative jurors. And the defendant wants liberal jurors. This is a case where the government's going to want liberal jurors and the defense is going to want the most conservative people. It's completely backwards. Turning everything up on its head. Uh, Tim Jansen, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that perspective. Thank you. And there is some breaking news tonight in the state of Texas. A tornado tearing through the northern town of Perrytown near Amarillo. You can see there the images of the extensive damage. The mayor of Perryton is saying that there are deaths, but could not immediately say how many. We also don't know how many people have been injured, but help is rushing there uh, as fast as they can. Just a devastating scene, as you can see there. Look at that tornado spinning. We're going to keep monitoring this and the very latest developments, and we'll bring you the latest as soon as we have it. But coming up next for us, a Republican pollster joins us on whether or not these charges against Trump are changing the minds of voters or instead just boosting his already strong support among Republicans. Plus, Barack Obama speaking out about the issue of race and about 2024 candidates and why he says that liberals may be risking uh, their standing in this debate over woke.
Just about one week into learning about the federal indictment of former President Trump, and the news is already shaking up the political landscape. So how will voters across the spectrum respond to these historic charges? And what could it mean for the 2024 election? I want to bring in Whit Ayers. He's the president of North Star Opinion Research, as well as Republican political strategist Cher Michael Singleton and former DNC communications director Mo Alethi. So, Whit, I want to start with you. You have been... uh, obviously a pollster for quite a long time, so you know this landscape really well. When you're looking at the Republican primary voters and how they are responding so far to all that we have learned, what are you seeing? Abby, it depends upon which Republican primary voters you're talking about. The GOP has split into three factions. There's a never-Trump faction that's appalled that Donald Trump took over the GOP, and they will react to, to the indictment as though it tells them everything they always knew about Donald Trump. That's only about 10%. There's an always Trump faction, which is about 35%. Those people will walk through a wall of flame for Donald Trump. They will brook no criticism of him. Criticizing Donald Trump to always Trump voters is like criticizing Jesus in a rural evangelical (laughs) church. You know, it's not going to have any effect on Jesus' reputation, but it will sure trash the reputation of anybody who takes a shot at him. A majority of the party, about 55%, voted for Trump twice, would vote for him again over Joe Biden in a heartbeat. But they're concerned that he might be carrying so much baggage that he'll have a hard time winning. There may be Trump voters. And the real question is what effect these indictments will have on them. Initially, it's caused them to rally around him. But there's a lot of evidence out there. Yeah, I mean, but do you think it helps Trump to double down on the fact that he's been indicted twice and maybe might be indicted a third time or even a fourth time? Abby, that's his modus operandi. He always doubles down and he will triple down if he's charged in in Fulton County. So he's always going to do that. That's the most predictable thing in American politics. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things uh, uh, to bring you guys in uh, there, Donald Trump this past week, Uh, made some comments that uh, got my attention. I want to just go ahead and play them for you. I will appoint a real special prosecutor to go after the most corrupt president in the history of the United States of America, Joe Biden, and the entire Biden crime family. I will totally obliterate the deep state. So... I mean, if you're listening, if you're a political person, maybe that doesn't sound is particularly special to you. But what struck me was that it was very explicit that he wants a prosecutor to go after Biden. And now the New York Times has has reporting that basically says that wasn't just a flippant political comment. That's actually a strategy that's Mm -hmm. being promoted by some conservative think tanks. I wonder how not just Republican voters, but just like the rest of the voting population, swing voters will take that. I mean, look, I, I think for Republican voters, they do agree. I mean, I was just, just in Georgia recently, a part of a focus group, and some of the Republicans who were voting for or supporting Ron DeSantis have flipped to now support Donald Trump. And one of the respondents stated that they did not like the fact that the DOJ under the current president was 
in, in investigating the guy who will likely be his front runner. Now, when you explain the nuances of what this all meant, they didn't necessarily care. They just said, it doesn't look right. I don't like the political optics of it. Therefore, I'm standing behind Donald Trump. Now, whether or not this will have an impact with swing voters become the general election, I'm not necessarily sure. But I, I do believe it cements Donald Trump's standing within the Republican Party, which is why you see him at 63 percent and his closest competitor, Ron DeSantis, at barely 20. Of course, those same voters had no problem when candidate Trump was threatening to investigate his leading political opponent back in 2016, right? So it all just depends on, on the perspective. But beyond Republican base voters, I think we have now seen three straight national elections in 2018, in 2020, and in 2022, where what's best to win over the Republican base is the worst strategy to win over to win in a general election, to win over independent voters. Conventional wisdom in 2022 was that no Republican candidate could run in those midterms without uh, fully embracing the idea that the 2020 election was stolen. So many of them did. And most of them got punished by general election voters for that. That does strike me as a big risk. What he what Mo is just describing, which is that sometimes going all in on the message that works with the Republican base is a double edged sword in a general election context. Well, it's a huge risk. I mean, Republicans, as Mo said, lost in 2018, 2020, 2021 in Georgia for the Senate seats and 2022. Uh, there's a question of whether it, you even can make that case for Republicans that it is really risky to go down this same road again after four losses in a row. But we'll see if uh, a candidate can make that case. To to your point, um, there's the recent CBS YouGov poll that found among Republican primary voters, likely Republican primary voters, 61 percent said the indictment wouldn't change their view of Trump. Seven percent had said it would worsen it. Fourteen percent it would improve their view of Trump. Yeah. That's extraordinary. I mean, if you add no change and improve, I mean, you're looking at some pretty high numbers there. 75% of the Republican Party? There, there are a whole lot of people who believe that this is a politically motivated indictment, and they're just going to reject it because of that belief. Uh, President Biden, Mo, um, his campaign defended their decision not to fundraise off of this indictment. Meanwhile, Trump has raised $7 million just in that first 24-hour period. Were they right to do that? Yeah. If they, if they had been sending out fundraising emails under the banner of the Biden-Harris campaign, they'd be making Donald Trump's point that this is overly political. By saying, you know what, we're going to let that process play out. We're going to go out there and actually talk about things that voters care about in their daily lives, but we are not going to politicize this process. That is the smart thing to do. Also, they don't necessarily need to fundraise. There's going to be plenty of money out there flowing to the Biden-Harris campaign. Trump is definitely a huge motivator for Democrats, as he is in some ways for Republicans. But everyone, stand by for us. We have more on our breaking news tonight. Authorities in Texas are now preparing for mass casualty events after a tornado ripped through Perryton. Stunning video is now coming in. Uh, Right there, you can see it. An extremely dangerous situation. We'll give you more on that as it comes in. Plus, former President Obama is now long gone from politics, but he is still weighing in on Republicans and on his own party. We will tell you what he said next.
As Donald Trump faces possible prison after a federal indictment, his allies in Congress are focusing on President Biden. They say that there's a fire and they're pointing to evidence that amounts to smoke. But they also now say that the evidence may or may not actually exist. So here is the backstory. Senator Chuck Grassley questioning whether then-Vice President Biden took foreign bribes to enrich his family. Republicans have issued subpoenas on that, but they found no direct tie to Biden. Instead, they are citing an FBI document that summarizes unverified claims by an informant. And that informant alleging that a Ukrainian executive offered bribes of $5 million. Now, CNN's Sarah Murray reports that investigators haven't been able to corroborate those claims. Here's Grassley earlier this week on the Senate floor. That the foreign national who allegedly bribed Joe and Hunter Biden allegedly has audio recordings of his conversation with them. 17 such recordings. These recordings were allegedly kept as a sort of insurance policy for the foreign national in case that he got into a tight spot. But just days after raising the possible existence of those tapes, Grassley is now saying something different. I just know they exist because of what the report says. Now, maybe they don't exist, but how will I know until the FBI tells us, are they showing us our our work? Some Republican colleagues in the Congress, uh, who've mostly been aggressive in going after the Bidens, they won't go there on the tapes. Do you think they exist? And if yes, how to obtain them? We don't know. And, uh, you know, Senator Grassley has never said they exist. I'm not aware that we have verified that those recordings exist. But we don't know for sure if these tapes exist. We don't know if they're legit or not. And even Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr, said that the claims in that report were unverified and he had forwarded them to investigators during his tenure. So what's noteworthy about all of this? Republicans were upset over unverified claims in the infamous and now largely discredited Steele dossier. Republicans like Chuck Grassley. He wrote a letter to the FBI demanding information about Christopher Steele, citing, quote, unverified memoranda Steele authored about candidate Trump and, quote, the impact of the unverified information that he had acquired in an effort to undermine the Trump campaign. But with all of these claims involving Biden, it appears that Grassley is playing to an audience of one, and that is the former president. Well... I hope he. I hope he thinks I'm doing good work. Uh, I'd like <laughs> to have him think that of my oversight work. And meantime, former President Barack Obama is speaking out now and taking a shot at Republicans who he says are not doing enough to acknowledge racial inequality. He says the GOP needs to have an honest accounting of our past and present. Listen. If if somebody's not proposing. Not both acknowledging and proposing elements that say, no, we can't just ignore all that and pretend as if everything's equal and fair. We actually have to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. If they're not doing that, then I think people are rightly skeptical. There may come a time where there's somebody in the Republican Party that is more serious about actually addressing some of the deep inequality that still exists in our society that 
tracks race and is a consequence of our racial history. And and if that happens, I think that would be fantastic. I, I haven't yet seen it. Back here now with Witt, Share Michael and Mo. So Share Michael Obama says that he doesn't really see you know, in the, let's look at the 2024 mm-hmm. field. Anyone really uh, taking a broad view of yeah. race? What do you say to that? I mean, look, I, I think Senator Tim Scott is trying to walk a very delicate balance in that regard. He's trying to be optimistic and, and forward thinking in terms of race uh, by making comments like the country is better and that he shouldn't be uh, the exception or he shouldn't be the rule necessarily. There should be tons of rules and not the exception. Uh, but but I also think about President Obama's remarks in 2013 at my alma mater, Morehouse College, when, when he essentially stated that no one cares when you're on an international stage against people from China and Brazil about some of the racial barriers you may have had because you're competing with people who are trying to be number one in their sector. And so I think in that regard, we can acknowledge the progress that we have obviously made from the past. But I think the former president is correct that we still have a, a long journey to make. There are a lot of strides that we have to continue to make as a country to move forward. I want to play actually what Tim Scott had said that Obama was actually reacting to. These comments were made on The View just a couple days ago. The the issue of discrimination that I have faced, I assume you face as well, Uh is an issue of the heart. It's not Republicans or Democrats. Frankly, both sides of the aisle can do a better job on the issue of race. And frankly, my side of the aisle, I think, is doing a fabulous job of making progress. The question is, how do we measure that progress? Um, with my read uh, or my listen of Obama's comments wasn't so much uh, to be necessarily critical of Tim Scott, but uh, to say that perhaps there's more that needs to be said. And Tim Scott really is kind of out there alone in having this conversation, even with Republicans, even to the extent that he is about race. Tim Scott's perspective is really important in this debate, I think, because he does have a unique perspective. Uh, No one should ever downplay the searing effects of racism in this country. But the question is how you measure progress. Progress is not the absence of problems. There are always problems. You measure progress by determining whether you'd rather have the problems of today or the problems of yesterday. And yesterday, it wasn't that long ago when a black person could not marry a white person. And if they did, they'd go to jail. When we have enforced segregation in this country. But now we have had a black president, we have a black vice president, and I think well, almost anyone would say we would like to have the racial problems we have today rather than the racial problems of yesterday. Do you, uh, Mo, I, I mean, do you think that even what Obama's talking about there is possible to have in today's Republican Party, that conversation? Well, it's interesting. Since we're talking about Tim Scott, back in 2016, Tim Scott gave a speech on the floor of the Senate that really, I think, everybody paid attention to, in which he talked about his own history, right, having been stopped seven times in one year. He said, I have felt the pressure applied by the scales of justice when they are slanted. There's absolutely nothing more frustrating, more damaging to your soul than when you know you're following the rules and being treated like you are not. Back then, Tim Scott seemed to acknowledge that there are some systemic challenges that are, that are leading to some of these problems. Today's Republican Party doesn't seem to want to acknowledge that. And you see that being played out in state after state, in school board after school board, by, by those people who are going after even the, the conversations about race in public schools. There seems to be a pushback by those who are fighting against wokeism 
of pushback against the notion that it is okay to acknowledge that we continue, despite all of our progress, that we continue to have systemic uh, racism in society and that they don't want government to deal with it at all. I mean, what do you say to that? I mean, when you see what's happening in places like Florida and Texas, mm-hmm. it's definitely painting a very different picture of how, the, how much the Republican Party really wants to talk about race in a way that deals with the past adequately and also the progress. I mean, look, I think it's the biggest hurdle that the Republican Party has had, Abby, for the past four or five decades now as it pertains to black Americans and their views and perspectives about the Republican Party and the party not being forward thinking on the issues of race as it once was nearly a quarter of a century ago. I think it's really difficult to not acknowledge that there are systemic issues that exist. Look at the disparities in terms of of housing. Look at the disparities in terms of health care. Look at the disparities economically. Look at the disparities, disparities educationally. All of those things can be statistically tracked in regards to the differences between black Americans and white Americans. We have to address those things. I want to play one more thing from uh, President Obama, former President Obama's interview with uh, David Axelrod. Now, what is true is I think that we have tended at times on the progressive side to tip into kind of a scolding social etiquette police and and virtue you know uh, signaling whereby somebody does say something exactly the right way even if you know we all know they kind of didn't mean it in an offensive way and suddenly you've got partly because of social media everybody jumping on them and saying somehow oh you must be racist or sexist He's talking to his own congregation there. Yeah, and he's not wrong, right? There, there are plenty of people out there who do not allow the grace of people making mistakes or understanding that some people travel along this path a little bit slower than others, and maybe the rest of us can help them get there a little bit quicker as opposed to immediately, immediately saying, If you are not 100% with me right now, you are a racist or a sexist. And we've seen that backlash even in some of the most progressive jurisdictions in the country. So I don't think the president is wrong. That does not mean we give any grace to those people who really are trying to hold back process or even worse, try to roll it back. But we need to find ways to connect with people heart to heart on these issues in order to bring them along. We have shown we can do that before. We can continue to do that. And Tim Scott can speak to those issues in a way that other Republicans will be willing to listen. And that's one of the huge advantages he has here. He does have a glass is half full rather than half empty perspective, but he can talk about these issues in a way that center-right voters will listen to him and not just reject him out of hand. Well, this is why debates will be so interesting in this race, because mm-hmm. once there's a lot of pressure to go hard against woke, so to speak, it'll be interesting to see how Tim Scott navigates that. But thank you all uh, for joining us. We have more now on our breaking news on the devastation in Perrytown, Texas, after a direct hit from a tornado. More pictures that you see there below. One official warning that it could be a mass casualty event. We will have an update for you after this break.
We are now back to the situation in Texas there in Perryton near Amarillo, where a massive tornado tore through that area. The mayor says that some, unfortunately, did not make it. And as you can see there, there is significant destruction. We just got in some chilling video of that tornado. I want you to take a moment and listen to what it sounded like on the ground. size and the power of that storm, you can really see it and hear it. Let's bring in Chad Myers in the CNN Weather Center. So, Chad, how bad is this? I think it's probably going to look at an EF3, so into the major category for sure. Now, a lot of the damage that I've seen today... Aluminum siding, shingles, but there were mobile homes that were completely destroyed. And I know a 100-mile-per-hour wind gust can do that, but there were also big structures that were brick-built, stick-built, that also uh, really received quite a bit of damage. We'll see. The Weather Service has to go out. What's really interesting, I think, today, too, not only the, the Perryton tornado, there was damage in Michigan. There was a tornado on the ground not that far from Sandusky, Ohio. Just about 30 minutes ago, there was a tornado on the ground near Pensacola, south of Pensacola, Florida, near the shore. And all of the tornadoes that were 1,000 miles or more to the west. So what a violent, violent day we had today. Now, the tornado threat is beginning to diminish, but the hail threat and the wind threat is not over yet for tonight. We are still going to have that threat at least until probably 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning after dark storms are harder to see tornadoes are harder to report so the damage really is what you look for even power flashes in the sky there are still storms out there oklahoma city especially to your north and even toward i would say norman and points east toward shawnee you have a couple storms and the only real rotating storm i have is now just to the east of sherman denison in texas but this was 
a day that we would really like to forget. An awful yeah. lot of rain and big hail and wind. Some of the wind gusts, I'm sure, will top 70 to 75 miles per hour, even in the overnight hours, Abby. So this isn't really over yet. Yeah, I, I, th that's exactly what I was wondering. And I also wonder, as we were just looking at those pictures of the burnt out, what looked like mobile homes, did those folks mm -hmm. have much warning that something like this was coming their way? You know, I, I listened to the storm chasers and he said, boy, this went from an EF zero to a three in no time. So, yes, there was a warning out there, but I don't believe it was the warning that people really thought that they needed to hear. And this is the key. If you hear that word warning or if your phone goes off, you cannot treat it like a small issue, a small tornado, because you don't know if it's going to be your neighborhood or not. Now, the entire town of Perryton did not get hit, but the center part of town, the tornado went right smack through the center part of town. North side, south side, a little bit better. Didn't as well in the middle. And this is what we're seeing right here. This is really the middle part of the town as the storm, the tornado itself, cut right from west to east, right across the city, the town itself. And that was what happened there. This was, uh, this was Brian's video. I was watching it live as he shot this. Wow. Um, he did a really fantastic job today, and I hope he saved some lives because that's why storm chasers go out there to get the word out that, yes, I see a tornado on the ground, and we need to have a warning on it. That's what they're there for. Yeah, I mean, he was incredibly close to that storm, at yeah, least it seems so by the video. Um, and we certainly hope that everyone um, is safe tonight. We'll keep updating that story as we go along. Chad, thank you very much. Sure. And up next for us, Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan, have been waging a very public war against the press. And now there is a surprising public apology from a magazine editor who played a role in some of that coverage. A rare apology tonight, one that's coming from someone in the magazine world, and it's directed toward a frequent target of the press. That's Prince Harry, the former editor of New Zealand's Women's Weekly, a magazine that heavily covers the royal family, is now sharing her regrets in a newly published letter. Alice O'Connell writes in part, I published some stories that were unfair and incredibly one-sided. I can now see they were from sources who weren't telling the truth. My biggest mistake, though, was that I stopped seeing Harry as a human being. Alice O'Connell joins us now. Alice, thank you for joining us. You have said that you owed a genuine apology to Prince Harry for quite some time. Why are you coming forward now? It just, it felt like the right time. It's, it's been about three years since I was the magazine editor. And I think that having that time has given me some perspective and I've been able to reflect on, on the role that I played in all of this. Um, but I think in the meantime, I've just been increasingly frustrated by watching the media coverage of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and just how, in my opinion, how unfair, how distorted, how often just quite mean uh, and spiteful that coverage can be. And I've hoped that maybe a reporter or a news organisation might take a step back and, and look at the way that they have covered the royal family, particularly Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, and look at how they have in the past, how they are now, whether it's justified or whether they might need to course correct. And I thought, why keep waiting? Why not just do it myself? Hmm. So I want to show folks at home some of the magazine covers that you approved during your time as an editor. And you say that you stopped seeing Harry as a human being in that time. That is, that is really quite the confession. I, I wonder, I mean, how did that happen? Why did that happen? 
Yeah, I mean, the royal family have a real hold on us in New Zealand um, that we are part of the Commonwealth. And so they have sort of been a big part of our society for well, more than a century in the terms of the media. And I think it's 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 kind of like how we do with celebrities, that we can put them in a bubble, that they live in a whole other world, that they're not like us regular folk. Um, and I think I got caught up in that and the churn of that, that news cycle and, and stopped realising that this was a, a real person who never asked for this life, who was born into it, who we've scrutinised since he was just an embryo and has really not deserved the the way that he has been treated by the media. Um, and, yeah, I think I feel like I, I need to stand up for him and, and look at what I've done in the past to, to be unfair to him also. I wonder what you would say to them if they were watching tonight. What would, what would you say uh, about everything that's transpired? Sure, I would. I would say to to keep going with you with what you're doing. And I'm, I'm sorry as I as I've written in my article and capsule that for what I have done um, and what I did when I was a magazine editor. And I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely sorry for for that time. And um, but I think what they are doing of not staying silent about this and continuing to let people know what it's like out there um, that they should continue to do so. And Prince Harry is currently in the midst of a major court battle with a publisher uh, over this very issue. Uh, So we really appreciate your perspective on this, Alice O'Connell. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for your time. And coming up next for us, more on our breaking news about that massive tornado damage in parts of Texas. And Allison Camerata will pick up our coverage in a moment. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We have breaking news at this hour. A devastating tornado ripping through northern Texas. Damage in the panhandle is extensive. Many homes in the town of Perryton are leveled. Much of the downtown is destroyed. One local official tells CNN that they are preparing for a, quote, possible mass casualty event. The Red Cross is mobilizing support teams right now. In a moment, we will speak with officials on the ground and let you know what they know about injuries and fatalities and, of course, where the storm is right now. We also have new developments tonight in the case against former President Trump. Donald Trump's lawyers are seeking security clearances as a federal judge who's overseeing this trial. The Trump appointee, uh, Aileen Cannon, gets the ball rolling. But what was Donald Trump's motive for taking those documents in the first place? And will the prosecutors need to lay that out in order to get a conviction? We'll discuss all of that. But we do want to begin with the breaking news tonight. So a tornado has touched down in Perryton, Texas, causing major destruction and anguish. A local hospital says it is treating between 50 and 75 people. Texas Governor Greg Abbott mobilizing the Texas Division of Emergency Management. So joining us on the phone right now is Brian Emfinger. He's a storm chaser. Brian, tell us where you are and what you're seeing. Yeah, I uh, have been in Perryton uh, most of the afternoon. I am now. Uh, I kind of got out of there. I didn't want to be in the way as the search and rescue continues. Um, but, you know, the, the tornado cut right across the town. So there's quite a bit of devastation all across Perryton. And what did you did you see um, injuries? Did you see people? Were you just seeing homes? 
Yeah, so the worst thing that I saw is on the northwest part of town, basically right when the tornado touched down, um, those people would have had very little warning because the tornado formed very rapidly. And there's a mobile home park there, and just at least a third, maybe as much as a half of the the whole mobile home park, it's kind of hard to tell because it's just like piles of rubble. And and even for a while, right after the tornado, it was was on fire, actually. And so um, it just... Uh, with the the short notice, it, it just you know if, if everyone made it out of there okay, it would be it would be a miracle. And the tornado continued across town, uh, homes, businesses. It went right through the downtown area and then into their industrial part of town. So it literally hit the residential, the downtown, and then the the industrial part of town as well. Oh my gosh, Brian, we're looking at your video right now. We're seeing your video, and we can see. Obviously, the the you know turbulent sky, but then we also j- did just see the mobile home uh, park that you were talking about, and it looks, as you say, completely devastated. So uh, I, I take it you sent a drone up to look over that mobile home park. Yes, yes. Um, I couldn't actually get to the mobile home park on foot. Uh, there was uh, a, a gas leak, and then with all the down power lines and trees. There was just no way to get to it. And in fact, I feel like uh, it, it took a while for emergency responders to get there as well. Because whenever I was flying around, uh, it looked like people were just having to self-rescue themselves. People were, were climbing out of rubble. Um, you know, there was the fire nearby. Um, it was just a, a really, really horrible scene. Later in the day, though, um, you know, on the other side of town, I saw some really amazing things. Like there was a, a, a house in a road. Um, and it was, the road needed to be cleared, so it needed to be bulldozed. And people were rushing in there, grabbing everything they could, putting it in bags. They ended up making this pile of, like, 20 foot tall of all these bags that people had salvaged from the home that lay in the road. Brian, we see what you mean. We can see people standing in the middle of the road um, just looking at what we assume were their homes. And you say there wasn't any warning. What do you mean? How, how quickly did this come up on them? Well, the, the problem was just the storm in general. You know, the Weather Service does a great job of tornado warnings, but the problem was this time the storm developed very rapidly. And from the it, really five minutes before it tornadoed, I would have not actually believed if you told me that it was going to tornado. Um, the, the storm uh, produced a wall cloud very quickly, and that wall cloud tightened up very rapidly. And and then it just, you know, it, it went to the ground very, very quickly. And so there wasn't, you know, a lot of times with a with a strong tornado, there's a lot of leeway, a lot of time for people to prepare. Um, but this time, just because of how quick the tornado developed, I'm not sure that there was a tremendous uh, length of time for people to prepare. We're looking at the fire that you were talking about right now at someone's in someone's home. Uh, Brian, if you can hold for one second, Chad Myers, our uh, our you know, chief weathercaster wants our meteorologist wants to ask you a question. Go ahead, Chad. Brian, I watched your video live on YouTube. Obviously, you were streaming the entire event and I noticed you put the drone up and got the pictures and you were a reporter for a bit for a few seconds. But then all of a sudden you turned into a first responder. Describe to our viewers how this happens all the time when chasers chase to a town and the town is hit. They stop chasing and they start responding. Well, I mean, there's nothing really else you can do um, when you see a, a town, um, you know, because, you, like, I know what, what those moments are like, and I know that, you know, in a normal situation, a first responder can just, you know, go to where they need to go. But in a situation like this, um, 
you know, the town is, is basically on its own for a while. There's too many respond, you know, too many things to respond to at once. And so anything that, that I can do to help, which even includes showing, you know, the, the area and the country, you know, how bad it is so that the necessary resources can come in. And, and by later today, they were starting to get those resources. There was vehicles just streaming into town. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, uh, some of us that, that played a small part in that. Hey, um, Brian, uh, Brian, what time did this happen, the, the video that we're seeing right now? Um, oh, you got me on that. Oh, well, uh, I guess, been, I mean, what time did it happen when you were taking that drone video? Uh, well, the drone video was shortly was shortly after the tornado. I mean, as soon as it stopped hailing, um, you know, I basically had the, uh, had the drone in the air. So... Uh, within 10 or 15 minutes, it was, it was close. It was around six o'clock is when I is. So the tornado was, um, I think a little bit after five and, uh, by, by six, I'd already had the drone in, in the air actually for a little while. Um, it would have had it up sooner. In fact, I would have had it around the tornado, but there was just too much hail. And, and honestly, there was a lot of debris in the air. That's how you can, you know, as soon as I saw the tornado such down, you could tell that it was, it was not a, a good situation with all the debris flying around it. Chad, can you look at this video? It's just, it's shocking to see people uh, who have survived, obviously picking through all of their stuff. Um, Chad, what were you seeing today as you were watching these storms? I was seeing that immediate development that Brian was just talking about and seeing all of the people that were in mobile homes that honestly didn't have time to go find a stronger structure. That's what we say. Find a stronger structure. A 100-mile-per-hour wind gust can knock over a mobile home. Get out of the mobile home. Go someplace stronger. Many of them didn't have that kind of time. Yeah. Um, Brian, we're also looking at what looks like downtown. Were you able to survey that? Yes. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, it it took a, a direct hit. And while not every part of the downtown is, is destroyed, it is heavily damaged you know basically all the windows are blown out parts of the roof you know parts of the buildings um so once you know i had found the you know all of the residential and i was actually by the industrial area watching the tornado there um so you know when i saw the downtown i was just like this is this is just not not a good thing i mean basically the heart of the town um you know just the tornado went right through it so it it really honestly just made me really sad because i was like there's there's no part of this town that that you know was was really okay. Brian, are you from here? Uh, no, I am from Arkansas. And so you knew that there was a, a tornado outbreak in Texas. I mean, why did you happen to be positioned here at this hour? Yeah, that that's that's what I do. Um, I have basically two full time jobs. One is storm chasing, and one is uh, is uh, using drones. And uh, so I was I was out here uh, on my day off to uh, to document the weather. Chad, what's it looking like in Texas now? Things have cleared in Texas. There's still a storm that's south of Sherman Denison uh, that's still rotating. Uh, this is well south of the Red River, nowhere near where the storm hit earlier. That, that area has now completely cleared out. But, you know, tornadoes on the ground today in Ohio, Texas, Oklahoma, and even parts of Alabama and Florida. I mean, I, I, you can't really get a larger area than that for severe weather. And everyone was scrambling, chasing, trying to figure out where the next one was going to rotate. And I'll tell you what, Allison, a lot of them rotated. A, a lot more than we anticipated, I think. Uh, you know, I expected two or three tornadoes, not seven or ten.
Yeah. Um, Chad, Brian, stand by if you would. We want to bring in now on the phone Coach Cole Underwood, the athletic director and head football coach at Perryton High School. And that school is now providing shelter and food for those who were hit by the storms. Coach, thank you very much for taking the time. What's happening there at the school right now? Absolutely. Uh, thank you all for having me and let me get this word out. Uh, we, we have a bunch of people up here. We, we have people with grills cooking. We have, we have people bringing supplies still. And I, I envision that it will go into the night. Um, that's one of the coolest things about, about being in a small town at a time like this is the way that a town rallies around the people that are in need. And uh, I, I'm just very grateful that we, we responded so quick and that, that we were able to, uh, to to throw this together because the, the supplies and all of the stuff that are incoming has just been incredible. And, Coach, do you have any sense of what the damage is? I mean, to let's start with human life. Do you have any sense of the injuries yet in your town? No, ma'am, I don't. I, I've heard rumors, but I'm not going to be one of those people that, that that spreads those. I don't want to speak to anything that I don't have definite knowledge of. Um, I, I just know that our community could use all, all of the prayers that, that can be sent to us right now. Uh, the, the devastation that I've seen pictures of and that our kids have sent me and that players that I have personally that's homes aren't standing anymore is just unheard of and just devastating for our town and for our kiddos so uh all, all that we're trying to do is be here for them and be here to help and uh uh just continue to pray for for those that are that are missing and that are injured and how many people do you think you have at the school right now oh uh, i would say upwards of 250 to 300 just volunteers and people coming in and eating and just just getting water and cleaning up and uh, I've been advertising. We've got generators. We've got fans and light bars. And we actually have a company, a former graduate of Perryton got in touch with me. He's a, he's a year younger than I am. He's bringing uh, his, his broadband company is going to get us Wi-Fi towers set up. Um, it's, a, it's a place where it's a safe roof over people's head for, for as long as they need it. And that's, that's the, the, another thing about small towns is we have the, the gym space and we have the, the capabilities to house the, the people that have lost everything, and we're more than willing to do that. So are some people still missing? I mean, are you, are you trying to connect people with family members there? Uh, trying to connect people with family members. I'm still trying to connect with some of our, our, our football players and some of our athletes. Um, uh, one of our big cell towers was damaged and torn down, and so I'm getting dial tones and straight to voicemail and and i've been on edge all day but there the the parts of town that i need to get to have been blocked off and some of our kids have been going and, and finding and helping and getting in touch with me and i've just been so amazed at the level of camaraderie and love that that this town has for each other and uh there there's no doubt in my mind that that it will continue and that we'll we'll find the people that need to be found and and uh and we'll we'll persevere through this thing it sounds like you will. I mean, that is really heartening to hear about your community, even at this really tough time. And so how many people do you think are going to have to spend the night there in the school? Uh, the, there's no telling. We have another building here in town that's opened up. Um, I'm actually trying to get the word spread because I don't know how many supplies are at, are at our county expo center um, just because of the, the vast amount of supplies we've had br- brought here. So um there, the whole northeast side of, of Perryton is just—it's just devastating, and it's—it's uh, it's a 
We have two two big basketball gyms. We have five and six locker rooms that have showers available, and, and we're just making it known that, that if they need a place to lay their head, that, that they're safe here. So, Coach, beyond prayers, what do you need right now? Any water, Gatorade, canned drinks, any anything, food, Pop-Tarts, canned goods, uh, it, it really anything you could think of, blankets, flashlights, candles, um, we would take anything and be grateful for anything that's donated. Um, it's just a uh, nothing can prepare you for for a time like this. And, and there, sadly, there's just not a list of things that you think about that you need on hand. But people lost everything today. So clothes, diapers, baby formula, any anything helps. And, and the the amount of goods that have already been dropped off and donated is so encouraging. And it's we have people contacting me from communities four and five hours away in the Oklahoma Panhandle and the Kansas in the state of Kansas and New Mexico and going down further south into Texas as far as Lubbock. Uh, and, and that's just really encouraging to, to let us know here in Perryton that people are behind us and that, that we're going to be okay. That is really encouraging, Coach. Thank you for um, sharing that message with us and for taking the time to talk to us. We are thinking of you and praying for you, and we will check back in to make sure everybody's okay there. Thank you very much. I appreciate y'all. You too. We want to bring in now Kelly Judis. She is the Judis, I should say. She's the interim CEO of Ocaltree County Hospital. She joins us on the phone right now. Kelly, thank you. I know it's a very busy night. So tell us what's happening at the hospital right now. Uh, right now, we are just trying to clean up and get ready in case we have more patients come in. How many patients do you have? Um. Right now, we don't have anybody uh, in our emergency room. Uh, We have either transferred them out or they have been able to go home. Today, we have seen somewhere between 75 and 100. And what kind of injuries were you treating? Anything from minor lacerations to major traumas. And when you say major traumas, what does that look like? Uh, Head injuries, uh, collapsed lungs, broken legs major lacerations, um, a little bit of everything. Yeah. Was there one particular part of town where the injured people were coming from? Yes, they were all coming from the north, north, northeast of town. I have not left the hospital, um, so I don't know the extent of damage throughout the town. Do you live in the town? I do. Do you know what's happening with your family and your home? I live in the country, and I believe my home is just fine. So, um, Kelly, have you seen any fatalities? We have not seen fatalities at our hospital. Do you have word from other hospitals? Um, No. All other hospitals in the surrounding communities actually came here to help us. Um, A few of them took patients to their hospitals. Most of the staff just stayed here and worked. We did have to send some critically injured patients to um, higher levels of care. So you've seen critically injured patients, but you you don't know of any fatalities at this point. Correct. So what does your hospital need right now most? Um, at some point, we're going to need supplies. We are on limited power. Um, the lo- local grocery stores have opened up, provided water. They've been great. Um, surrounding communities have brought in other things. Um, our regional advisory council, who is 
the people that help us with our traumas. Um, they actually brought in a whole task force of people to help us out. Um, Kelly, are you on a generator? Yes. Yeah. And so how long are you going to be able to operate? Uh, we can operate on each generator for a little over 72 hours. Mm-hmm. Well, Kelly, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, we're thinking of all of the injured uh, patients and all of you who are working through the night. We really uh, appreciate your time, and obviously we're, we're praying for you guys there. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me on your show. Thank you. All right, we're joined now by the owner of Chicago and Midwest Storm Chasers, Curtis uh, Lerner. So, Curtis, tell us what you're seeing. Lerner, thank you. Uh, Tell us what you're seeing. Oh, do you want me to explain what I saw basically today? Yes, please. Um, So, basically, we're on the south side of town. There was a supercell thunderstorm developing just on the west-southwest part of town. Um, We're watching it slowly develop. To be honest, I didn't think it was going to produce a tornado going to town, but it had a funnel cloud hanging about halfway off the ground. That's when I started to inch my way closer to town. I pulled into a parking lot, saw the funnel, and then I saw a power flash. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get closer to this. And when I got into downtown, I noticed that there was power going out. I'm like, okay, the tornado must be hitting something at this point. So when I rolled into town, um, I did notice there was a lot of debris and destruction in the downtown parts. And then I instantly got out of the vehicle when I did get into downtown to help with victims as well. There's people in their cars with airbags deployed, cars flipped, and then people screaming for help. They were inside mobile homes. Oh, that's awful, Curtis. That's awful. And so what were you able to help with? Um, We were able to help um, pull some victims out of mobile homes, kick, kick some doors in because there's trees actually thrown um, into the mobile homes, like the roof was taken off and then there was a tree blocking the door. So we had to break the door down to help the elderly lady out. And then there was another guy that was actually in the garage. He took shelter in his car in the garage and the whole garage caved in. So we had to help him out as well. And then there was a couple other victims that were stuck um, in a mobile home that was tipped over. So she was stuck inside all the walls that were just kind of closed in on her. So it took time for us to get her out. And then there was another victim that had head trauma that had blood coming out of her head. So she needed to be um, transported to the hospital immediately. So there's a lot of people there that we're trying to help with all at the same time. I jumped out of the vehicle instantly after the tornado passed and I got um, hit with some huge hell. So I have some welts all over my body for helping people. And while there was still hell coming down, but I'm just glad it we were able to account for most of the people that we checked on the homes. And then there was a lot of people walking around helping others as well. Curtis, that's incredible. Are you trained to do any of that stuff? Life, life-saving stuff? I have a couple training. Um, I haven't been certified at the fire department in some quite time, um, but I do have some knowledge of helping people. But when it comes to like the severity of it, probably not. I would probably leave it to the experts. <laughs> Were there people, were there emergency, um, you know, EMS people who were able to get there? I mean, what we've heard is that it was impossible for some emergency services to make it to some of these places. Yeah, so there was a lot of power lines down throughout much of the neighborhoods. Um, Basically, where I parked my car, I walked about a good quarter mile or half a mile into the neighborhoods to help people. I couldn't really drive into there because there's so many power lines and destruction that was um, blocking most of the roads. And 
I think the fire department in town, um, they couldn't get their vehicles out because their building collapsed on most of their vehicles. So they had emergency vehicles coming in from all over the place, from different towns and counties. I remember when I was finally leaving town, they had a convoy of um, emergency vehicles coming in from like the um, Kansas border as well. Uh, Liberal, I believe. That's where I got my hotel at as well. But they have mass cam- uh, convoys of emergency um, vehicles coming in to help um, because some of the uh, there just wasn't enough. Did you see any fatalities, Curtis? I can't confirm. There's rumors that there's fatalities in town, um, but I don't want to say a number because if it's not true, I don't want to be that person that says there is. But yeah. I can't confirm that yet. I just heard rumors there is. Yeah. I don't want to confirm it. I understand. And and Curtis, did your uh, warning system on your phone go off? Do, how much warning was there for these tornadoes? So I believe on one of the videos in the beginning when the cone tornado was um, just making its way into town, um, I did have the warning system go off on my phone. Um, another case there, I was on the other side of town, so they heard the sirens. But on my video, you can obviously hear no sirens. So unless I didn't hear them. I mean, I got the emergency alert on my phone, so obviously it would activate the sirens going off in town, but I didn't hear any sirens at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, Curtis Lerner, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us and tell us about your incredible experience. It sounds like uh, it sounds like people will be very grateful that you were there to help tonight. So thank you for uh, sharing all the video and the story with us. You're welcome. All right. Obviously, we're going to be keeping an eye on that because this is the breaking news. Uh, That town of Perryton has been devastated. So we will bring you all the updates from that. We want to take a quick break. We also have some new developments in the Trump documents case. Trump's lawyers making moves tonight. So we'll tell you about that. Now to the latest in the criminal case against Donald Trump for mishandling highly classified documents. Sources tell CNN that Trump's attorneys are in touch with the Justice Department about getting security clearances after Judge Alien Cannon ordered all the lawyers to start this process now. Let's bring in our panel. We have Jessica Washington of The Root with us, also Republican strategist Jason Osborne and former Nixon White House counsel John Dean. Okay, so for all the people who worried that Justice Cannon was going to slow roll this somehow or show some partiality to Donald Trump. That is not happening right now. She has already set deadlines. And in fact, the Trump attorneys are complying with that. I think she gave them the deadline of tomorrow to have to already be in touch with the DOJ and get their security clearances. And so, um, John Dean, let me start with you because I think you know what this entails. How long will it take to get security clearances so that everybody will be able to deal with and talk about these highly classified documents? And what will that process look like? Well, the first thing they'll have to do is file a form that is a ma- it's the mother of all forms, actually. It's a very thick document, about an inch and a half, maybe 3,000 questions that goes into their, their residence, where they've lived, their, all their employment, all their foreign travel. It, it really probes their life. That's the basis for the FBI or other investigative agencies for each of the intelligence agencies involved to take a look at their background to investigate it. So the, the first question that's asked, Allison, is do you understand that making a false statement on this is a crime? And if they don't check yes, they're not going to get very far in the clearance process. How long it will take? It's hard to tell. Uh, I suspect in this case, the FBI will try to expedite it, given the stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Jason, how, what do you think all of this will, in terms of the time, the timeline of this, and that it seems to be starting now, as well as there are other cases, as you know, um, that are also gearing up against Donald Trump. What is all of this going to do to the Republican primary and the timeline for that? I, well, I think that Republican primary is going to continue to move forward. I think the longer that we have this case drag out, is I think you're going to see more and more Republican candidates or more and more electeds kind of flirt with that crossing that line of going against Trump on this. So you we, do, though we've not seen much of that we yet. We saw Governor Kemp. We saw Nikki Haley. We've seen, obviously, Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson. But, I mean, I really look at kind of Governor Kemp taking the lead on this and saying, you know what, I think this is a distraction. And instead of talking about the issues that are facing Americans, we're talking about a personality. And the longer that Trump is in this, all we're going to focus on is the personality and what Trump is going through. So I'm kind of torn on whether this dragging this out benefits Trump or it certainly doesn't benefit the process but I think that the longer that he's bogged down, he's not able to get out there and say anything about what he's going to do in the next term. Let me see if our other Republican, Scott, agrees. Scott, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it, it's possible uh, that what Jason said is true. On the other hand, Trump could become even more of an avatar for a group of voters who just want to use elections to you know, flip the bird to the government, to the establishment, to the political elite, whatever you want to call it, and these indictments sort of continue to lend to that attitude. So we don't, the truth is we don't know how that's going to go just yet. There's no evidence in the polling yet that he is sinking. In fact, there's evidence in the polling that he has a firm grip on it. I do agree that the more the Republicans dig in with Trump, the more likely it is that in a general election, you know, independent voters, people who decide elections would look at this and say, are you crazy? We're not, we're not going to, we're not going to put somebody who's facing, you know, four plus indictments in the white house. That's nuts. I mean, that, you know, though a Republican primary voter might want to do that, I, I doubt many independent voters would want to do that. And, of course, Joe Biden and the Democrats know that. Their entire strategy is to run against Trump. That's what they want. That's what they're banking on. Uh, and I guess the only question is whether the Republican Party is going to oblige them or not. Jessica, that leads us to something else we don't know yet, and that is the motive for this. Why did Donald Trump take these hundreds of cl- highly classified documents home. And, it, you know, there's been all sorts of different theories already floated from he likes keepsakes to perhaps he wanted to lord them over somebody or sell them later. You know, when you look at the pictures of how he was dealing with them, they were next to the toilet. They, they were next to the toilet in the guest bathroom that people go in and out of that are not locked. Here is the toilet. There are the classified documents in some of the boxes. The New York Times has an, and here they are spilled on the floor. Um, the New York Times has an interesting piece that some of his closest aides called this his beautiful mind material in reference to the character that Russell Crowe played in that movie, who was schizophrenic, but liked to keep stuff, the horrid stuff and documents around it. He himself knew where it was, sort of cataloged in his own brain, but not anywhere else. Yeah, and it's so hard. I almost don't want to get inside of Donald Trump's mind 
But, I mean, it does kind of almost, I mean, obviously we can't know the true motive at this moment. Maybe we never will. But it does kind of almost seem like someone who didn't want to let power slip away. I mean, these are, you know, very important documents from the audio that, you know, the prosecutors have presented inside of this indictment. You know, he's showing it to people. He's talking about, oh, they made this special plan for me and I have it and it's mine. And that kind of language, it does kind of seem like, okay, I've got to hold on to this power. I've got to lord it over people. It seems very personal and not very political necessarily. All right, friends, thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. Obviously, our segments are short because we have all of this breaking news. Really appreciate you guys. We're keeping an eye, though, on this breaking news because a tornado has devastated the town of Perryton, Texas. And we'll show you the damage there and find out how everyone is doing in that town. Also, former President Obama says Republican presidential candidates are trying to downplay race and inequality in the U.S. And he did not stop there. His words next. Former President Obama talking about Republicans and race. Here's what he said on the Axe Files podcast about Republicans like South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, who he thinks is downplaying racial inequality in the U.S. If somebody's not proposing, not both acknowledging and proposing elements that say, no, we can't just ignore all that and pretend as if everything's equal and fair. We actually have to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. If they're not doing that, then I think people are rightly skeptical. There may come a time where there's somebody in the Republican Party that is more serious about actually addressing some of the deep inequality that still exists in our society that tracks race and is a consequence of our racial history. And and if that happens, I think that would be fantastic. I, I haven't yet seen it. Joining us now is podcast host Coleman Hughes and Jay Michelson, who clerked for Attorney General Merrick Garland. Jessica Washington and Jason Osborne are back. Okay, Coleman, um, what do you think about what he said and how do you think Republicans deal with race in general? Yeah, so, I mean, he's, he's talking about talking the talk and walking the walk, right? Obama talked a great game. I mean, his speech on race from 2008 Maybe the best speech I've heard any U.S. politician give, acknowledging the past, acknowledging the nuances of the issue. When it comes to walking the walk, did he support the kinds of policies that maybe now he is, uh, uh, may now be popular in the Democratic Party? Obama didn't support reparations, for example, right? And so when he's calling out someone like Tim Scott, is there a substantive policy proposal that he's saying Tim Scott should support X policy? Or is he saying that conservatives should talk about race more the way that Obama does. And what is that talk really worth? Jessica? Yeah, I mean, I can't say that Obama has done everything perfect on race. I think that would be inaccurate. But what I can say is that this is a really good and important point, that optimism is okay, optimism is great. Being obtuse about race in America is not. You can't address problems you refuse to you know, even acknowledge. I think that's part of the problem. And yes, you can have policy disagreements that are important to have, but we can't even have these policy disagreements if we don't agree that there's a problem. I'm Jason, you worked for Ben Carson when he mm-hmm. was running for president. How do you think Republicans deal with race? I think it's a very difficult subject, obviously, to tackle. And one of the things that I found on the campaign and working for Dr. Carson is the amount of just attacks against him for being a Republican as a black man. And that was hard to see. And I don't know how 
obviously not as a black person. I don't know how that feels to him, but I don't necessarily think that Tim Scott and others like Dr. Carson are saying that there isn't a problem. I think that they were putting themselves out there and saying, you know, look what I've been able to accomplish and look where we've come. And I do, I, I understood exactly what President Obama was saying. And I think there's a later clip, and I don't know if we're playing it tonight, where he did talk about this dynamic where if you aren't 100% with the folks on the Democrat or progressive side of this issue, then you're automatically labeled as racist. And he, rightly so, said that that's not, I I think, I'm paraphrasing, that's counterproductive. And I think if we're going to be serious about this, we need to have a discussion where both sides listen and not accuse. Yeah, it just it filled me with nostalgia listening to this real eloquence, which is so often missing in our contemporary politics. And it was interesting, you know, there's there's discussion of the issues and there's the caricaturing of the issues. And I think what we saw from in just in that clip and in, in the wider interview was a really eloquent analysis of the historical legacies of, of racism in this country and the way that that impacts actual inequality on the ground, health disparities, income disparities, safety in schools, education, and so forth. And, you know, but we've got this cartoon image now of wokeism, a word that was kind of kidnapped by by the far right from progressives. And it just means whatever people want to make it mean, you know, you should be ashamed of being white or you should this or you should that, which was not what the term was originally meant to be. And I wish I, I agree. I mean, I wish we could return to the kind of eloquence and nuance that we see in that clip. Carmen, what do you think about what Jason was just talking about, which is there is, there is sometimes a feeling that if you're black, you can't be a Republican. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, black conservatives get called uh, horrible things. Uncle Tom, sellout. I've been called some of these things for some of the positions I've taken. And uh, there is this mentality that if you're, you're, your blackness is a politics. It's an, right, if you're black, you have to think this way just because you're born black. God forbid you would use your brain and have an opinion that bucks a consensus, Right. And uh, a, a great Obama quote is that there are as many ways to be black as there are black people, right? That's a great Obamaism, and I think he uh, he really respects that, and he uh, he exemplifies that. One of the funny things is that, and I've heard him say this before. This is, I think, one of his favorite topics. He he doesn't like all the semantics mm. around. You know, he thinks that. He said it again on the Axe Files that basically progressives can be too scolding, too finger wagging, that when you, you know, really um, criticize people for not using the right words, it's counterproductive. Yeah. And I think what I've found, I mean, what's so interesting is I see that on social media. I don't think I've ever seen it in real life. I like I've never I can't I've never been in a circle where I've actually been around people and I've said, oh, wow, we've gone too far. You know, I've been in tons of circles where I'm like, oh, my gosh, people are saying these things and no one is challenging it or I'm the only one challenging it. It's just so interesting. when We have these conversations and they're so focused on kind of Twitter and the social media sphere. And we have these conversations that just aren't practical in real life. I don't think these are happening. Thank you for drawing that distinction between Twitter and real life. I think that that is an important one to remind everyone of all the time. Thank you all for the perspective. Uh, Okay, so we're following breaking news tonight. A tornado has devastated the town of Perryton, Texas. We're going to speak to a storm chaser who is bringing victims to the hospital. Next. Tornado just went through town. We are back with our breaking news now. A devastating tornado hitting Perryton, Texas. TV station KAMR is reporting at least three deaths. Homes are flattened. Much of the downtown has been destroyed. 
One local official told CNN last hour that they were preparing for a, quote, possible mass casualty event, but we have not gotten an update on any death toll. Joining me now on the phone is storm chaser Nick Smigo. Nick, tell us where you are and what you're seeing. Um, so currently I am about 65 miles south of Perryton. Um, it's completely clear now, not seeing too much, but headed into uh, a possibly assist if any assistance is needed. And so were you in Perryton? Had you seen, have you seen some of the destruction there? I was actually just south. Um, I saw a total of three tornadoes at one time, but no, I did not see any of the destruction yet. So um, we had heard from folks who were in Perryton that the, there was basically no warning. There was no time for the folks in one particularly hard-hit uh, mobile home park to get out of the way or to seek cover. What about the tornadoes that you saw? Um, the tornadoes I saw, they weren't warned right away either. Um, I did send a video over to the National Weather Service to get them warned as soon as I saw them. Um, it was the same way with the fire that I saw north towards Perryton. I also sent that to the National Weather Service to get it warned as well. Um, okay, Nick, stand by if you would, because we just got the fire chief of Perryton, Paul Dutcher. Uh, we want to bring him in right now. Uh, chief, thank you very much. I know it's a busy time for you, and I hear that the fire department took a direct hit from the tornado. Tell us what it's like there. Well, yeah, there's there's uh, damage uh, all across the, the north and east part of uh, uh, Perryton, uh, and the center part of the destruction uh, is... Uh, two-block area of our downtown area, and that's where our fire department is located. Uh, we took a direct hit. Um, many of our trucks are uh, pretty badly damaged, uh, but, uh, you know, we're still uh, doing some search and rescue, uh, looking for uh, victims. Uh, as far as we know, we have everybody uh, counted for uh, maybe other than one person. And so so we are still uh, doing some searching, seeing if we can find them. We've got some uh, infrared cameras on drones out uh, in parts of the areas uh, looking. And uh, so... So a lot of, uh, you know, this this area is probably a mile, a mile and a half long, uh, at least uh, through the city that, that took the hit. And, Chief, do you know of any fatalities in your town? Uh, I do currently know of three fatalities. And where were those folks? Uh, one was on the northeast part of town in the trailer park and then two in the downtown uh, business district. Uh, do you know anything about those victims? Uh, no, I don't have any information on those right now. Yeah. And, and Chief, uh, have you all been able to go out and perform emergency services with, with your vehicles destroyed and the fire department <laughs> taking a direct hit? Uh, we, we have been able to get out. Uh, we did eventually get all of our units out of the station, so, so we are all uh, running, but we have... Uh, Mutual aid uh, partners uh, 15 and 20 miles away that uh, showed up. And so uh, as far as getting uh, emergency services and and things uh, into the community, it didn't take us uh, very long. Well, that's just incredible that you're able to do all of that still, even even under these circumstances. And so how common is what happened there tonight? I mean, obviously, Texas is no stranger to tornadoes, but is this worse than what you've normally seen? 
Well, so I've been on the fire department for 33 years, and this is the first tornado that's done any type of major damage to the city. Uh, we've had some small F-Zeros uh, touch down and uh, just uh, maybe skirt the city or, or do a little bit of damage, but uh, absolutely nothing uh, to this magnitude uh, in the last 33-plus years. Do you have any sense of how many homes have been destroyed? Uh, no, my, we're, I'm going to guess probably 200. Well, Chief, uh, we know that you're busy. We really appreciate you giving us a status report. Thank you very much. And obviously we will check back in with the people of uh, Perryton throughout the night. Thank you for being here. All right. Thank you. Uh Bye. Okay. We'll be right back. Tomorrow on CNN This Morning, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez joins live to talk about his run for president. That starts at 6 a.m. Eastern. Thanks so much for watching our breaking news coverage tonight, and our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.